Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 364 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron. So glad that you are here with me today as this episode is brought to you by my patrons who are at the $5 a month level and up. And for them, I am their mini coach and they can ask me anything that they want. And I will answer in these mini episodes, which aren't really a mini episodes. I don't know why I say the word mini. They're bonus, bonus episodes. And I hope that you enjoy this one brought to you by my patrons. You can always check that out at patreon.com slash Rachel. And you supporting me really does mean the world. And it makes the difference between um, being able to do the show and being able to write the essays, which I am very proud of and excited by. And I just sent this month's off and it was scary to send that one. If you're a patron and you've looked at the email, you may know why. I, <laughs> I'm i calling it a mid-light crisis and I am realizing that I have a lot of questions right now and I don't know the answers to. I have a lot of feelings that I think signal questions and I don't even know what the questions are because, and this freaks me out because I am a person who likes to know the answers. And if I don't know the answers, I like to know the question so that I can go out and find the fix, find the answer. And I don't have that right now. And I wrote an essay about it and it has gotten the most response of any essay for a long time. So it resonated with people. And the reason I'm saying this is because you, my patrons, allow me to do that. You can always come in, look at the essays and then go away. I also want to say that people who support me for a while and then can't for a while. There are always people coming in and out of Patreon, and I am grateful for anything that anyone gives me, and I never trip when somebody needs to leave. Um, that is just the way the world works, and I just want to say how grateful I am to all of you. Okay, let's get into these questions because they are really good. All right, first one comes from Rukma, and uh, Rukma, I know I did send you a quick answer on Patreon because sometimes I feel like these things are really time sensitive and I don't want you to wait as I am stacking up a few to do an episode for. Um, and Rukma says, interpreting a rejection. Hi, Rachel. Um, she says, no need to record a whole a thing on this if it's not a common question. I would be delighted just with a comment back. But honestly, Rukma, I wanted to answer this because um, it will help someone else. She says, I just got a rejection on my second ever submission to a lit mag, and I didn't know how to interpret it. It said, thank you for your submission. Although we must pass on your submission this time, we admired your writing. This is not our usually usual decline. Please try us again, end quote. Is this serious? Should I try again with a different piece? How long do I have to try again? I wanted to be really clear that no agent, no editor, no literary magazine, anybody who is in a gatekeeping role, they never have any interest at all in encouraging someone that they don't want to encourage. If they want to decline something or someone and they don't really want to hear from them again, it didn't, whatever it was, was not right for them in the moment, and they're not looking for more for that person, they will send either a form rejection or they will not respond at all. This could by the by the tone and the verbiage of it, it could be a form rejection, uh, but it is the form rejection, you know, like they have written this before to send to people, but this is the one they choose. They pull out, copy and paste and send back to someone that they want to hear from again. This is serious. They are serious. This is not their usual decline. 
they want to see your work again. Please try us again. In answer to your question of uh, with a different piece or when, yes, with a different piece. Um, I wouldn't probably rework this and resend. I would do a different piece and I would not send it within three days of getting this. And this is just something I'm pulling out my butt, but uh, I wouldn't send it within one to three days, but anything more than a week, fabulous timing or in six months or in a year, this doesn't expire. Um, what I would do is in the next query letter that you attach with the story or however it is that they accept submissions, I would say, I was delighted when you asked me to try again with my next piece. Here it is. So pleased to show this to you. Let me know what you think, et cetera. Remind them that you got an unusual decline from them. That will only help you. And they want to see it. They are not in the <laughs> they're not interested in wasting their own time. They encouraged you because they wanted to encourage you. And that is so cool. Encourage, congratulations. That's an awesome rejection. And rejection is just part of this business. And when we are rejected, I've said this before and I'll say it again, we should be celebrating. Every single rejection we get shows that we are a working writer. And yes, it's an arrow to the heart. And it also deserves perhaps that favorite kind of chocolate that you love or a bath or a, a pedicure, massage, um, an extra going to the movies with your friends. It deserves celebration every time we get rejection. Yay, clap and cheer. For yourself. I used to go to RWA in America and whenever anybody would talk about a rejection, we would clap and cheer. And that really shifted the way I think about rejection. So congratulations. That's awesome, Rukma. Okay. Um, VE says, oh, I'm looking forward to being on your podcast, VE. Uh, VE says, I don't remember hearing my question. And now that I'm at $5, I thought I'd check in and see if you did it. And I just missed it. Um, I'm glad that VE checked in because sometimes I do miss things. Patreon doesn't always let me know about the questions and then I'll go in and it's been months and I haven't seen them. So if anyone doesn't hear the answer to my question, please ping me and I'll either re-answer it or I'll tell you that I answered it or I'll forget that I answered it and just answer it all over again, uh, which I think has happened. So uh, the question from VE is, uh, what do you know now about an intercontinental move that you wish you'd known then? Asking for a friend who's considering moving from Texas to Australia. What do I know now about this intercontinental move that I wish I'd known then? I wish that I had known for sure. This is not really the answer to your question, but this is what I wish I had known. I wish I had known it was all going to be okay. That we were doing the scariest thing that I've probably ever done in my life. And I had a strong hope that it would be okay, but there was also huge fear in my heart that I was breaking everything and that I was doing everything wrong. A very wise friend told me um, when we were getting ready to move, she said, you will feel, and you may want to pass this on to your friend, you will feel strange and out of place and lost for about a year. And then suddenly at the year point, things will start to really kind of fit. And at two years, you are home and going back to visit the place you left will feel foreign to you. And that is exactly the timeline, exactly what we have found at two years, this is home. And going back to visit feels very strange. Another thing that somebody told me, I had really good advice um, before we moved. Another thing that really helped us a lot was we never allowed each other to say the word home in reference to where we had left. 
that was our old place where we used to live. We would say back in the States, back in California, back in Oakland. But if one of us slipped and said, well, back home, we used to do this. The other one would correct the person and say, oh, you mean back in California? Because we came to New Zealand intending to, the make, to make this home. And we called it home from the very beginning. And somehow that semantic choice really, really, really helped. Um, what didn't I know about the intercontinental move? Uh, that <laughs> I had this, I had this suspicion that I wouldn't be able to get certain things in New Zealand, like it's a third world country or something. I know it's not. My family is from here, but I was still worried about like, well, where will I get this particular thing? There are two things that I can't get here. And they are CoverGirl Outlast lipstick. And I could get it on Amazon Australia if I wanted to pay a crap ton of money. Uh, but instead, I just stock up when I visit the States. And the doxy, I can't say this word, but doxyalamine, which is in um, the sleep aid that is also a de- uh, antihistamine that works really well for my allergies. And it works to help me sleep a little bit. I think probably I've been on it for so long. It doesn't. And when I don't take it, I get migraines because I have histamine activated migraines. Um, I found a couple of things that work okay here in New Zealand, but that one doxyalamine really works well for me. So I've got to go to the States and stock up. Oh, uh, that's probably the only way I can get it. I can't even ask somebody to send that to me because it's technically illegal in the country, although it's very, very low dose sold over the counter in the States. Those are the two things, everything else, everything else I can get here. They have as good or better, everything as good or better, everything usually for a better price um, when we compare it to US dollars. So I would tell them to be brave, to call it home, to be patient. And um, that is, it's just going to be great. It's going to be great. Thanks for asking. Okay. Um, Linda Moore says, hi, Rachel. I've just returned from a lovely three-week vacation in Hawaii with hubby. I literally did not write the entire time, not even in my journal. Any tips for getting back into my writing routine and more importantly, the second draft of my memoir? Yes. Number one, good job. That sounds like a real vacation. You did great. We deserve vacations from writing, just like we deserve vacations from other things in our lives. You had a great time off. You did nothing wrong. When we take time off, we do not lose the muscles. Um, Something that was explained to me when I was a runner is that I learned to run. I'd never been a runner before. I was training for a marathon. I did two marathons and a few half marathons. Um, And I always thought that if I didn't run for a month or two, that my muscles would go back to the way they had been. That is not true physically. And it is true now, even though I haven't run in probably a few years. If I were to start running again, which I will not, but if I were, my muscles would come back much, 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 much faster than they did when I was beginning, when I was starting. And I truly believe that with writing, it is the same way. Once we build up those big muscles, They don't atrophy to nothing as if we never had them. They come back really, really quickly. So just be graceful with yourself. Be gentle with yourself. Ask yourself the first day you're coming back to do just 10 minutes or the bare minimum that you can even imagine doing. And then be okay walking away. And then the next minute, add another 10 minutes to what you were doing until you're back at your goal time spent in the chair 
but you did nothing wrong. You did something great. You allowed your brain to rest. So good job. And I would love to know how it's going uh, when you're back into it. Okay. Next question comes from Sandy Menard. Hi, Sandy, who says, uh, hi, Rachel. I hope you're doing splendidly. Thank you so much for your knowledge and time with my last bunch of questions and lacking confidence. I'm happy to report that hasn't bubbled up lately. I love that, Sandy. Uh, I've pushed forward and another question has popped up. I'm almost through your many podcasts and have learned so much. I do not recall hearing about nonfiction much or on the structure. Would this be the same as memoir or fiction structure? Um, I picked up on one of the tips of writing what you like. And so I know I would like to put it together, a book that can be flipped through instead of being a cover to cover read. Any, oops, that went away. Uh, any knowledge or tips you could throw my way would be greatly appreciated. Thank you again. So what an interesting question. I don't think that anybody has ever asked me this. So nonfiction is this huge umbrella and awkwardly memoir fits under nonfiction because we're writing about true things, right? It's not made up whole cloth. It's not fiction. So therefore it is nonfiction, but memoir traditionally and often, and usually follows some kind of standard story structure. And therefore we talk about memoir a lot of times in the very same breath that we talk about novels. Um, and that is that's like I said, it's awkward. All other nonfiction fits under there too. Self-help and books about plumbing and cookbooks and gardening books. All of that follow, falls under nonfiction. So when we are talking about story structure, we do not need to use that for those kind of nonfiction books that are basically nonfiction like that normally wants to solve a problem. It is answering a question that somebody is asking and somebody with knowledge is giving a lot of answers to help another person out. Fiction and memoir leads a reader through an emotional experience showcasing character growth. We do not have that kind of emotional experience showcasing character growth or human growth in straight up nonfiction. Self-help is going to tell you how to be a better person. Um, the cookbook is going to tell you how to cook. The gardening is going to tell you what to plant when. There are some combinations. Um, I've heard it called prescriptive nonfiction, prescriptive memoir, where somebody is telling their own story of their life and it may be self-help and they've got some memoir bits in it, bits about their lives. And in that case, yes, we may want to look at having a little bit of a structure. We may want to show the inciting incident. The darkest part of the book may be around 75 to 85% of the book because that's where people will expect it to be. But in most cases, nonfiction, you kind of get to do what you want, which can be difficult. You have to figure out how to organize your thoughts in a clear, cohesive way that makes sense. But you can leave behind the emotional journey that you want to take your reader on. So, um, Hopefully that is useful to know, and hopefully that relieves a little stress about that. When we are showing a character, whether it is ourselves or a fictional character, um, going through something and changing, that's what we do with memoir and fiction. With nonfiction, we're just answering questions, and we want to do that in a, in a way, in a format that makes sense, but doesn't have an emotional arc necessarily. You could probably fit one in if you want to combine things, but you do not have to. Great question. Thank you. 
Um, and then last question comes from Linda Moore again. Okay. Uh, she says, hi, Rachel, my writing group suggested I consider writing my memoir as a parallel narrative. The woman whose dreams of marriage and family were broken, just juxtaposed against the woman she became when she sailed away to live the dream. I'm intrigued by this idea as a rich story of growth and self-discovery. Can you talk about parallel narratives and do you know of any examples of them in memoir? So this idea of the dual narrative is something that I always love to see and love to read. I love to read dual narratives in fiction. I love to read them in memoir. And what that is, is where you have one story and then you have another story in memoir where we have one main character. We can't have two main characters in memoir because then it is not a memoir. In memoir, where we have only one main character, the dual timeline, therefore, is always different actual timelines. Like you can have the now chronology and the past chronology. You can have, for example, um, a, I'm going to make this up right now out of my head, but a uh, you can have the one night on the 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 one long haul flight on an airplane a woman sits down and meets another woman in the chair next to her and half of the book is about that one plane flight that lasts 12 hours that's half of the book 50% of the book is that story of their meeting and conversing on this plane and then the other 50% of the book could be about this woman's childhood to the point where she got on the plane it doesn't matter that the that one is 12 hours and one is 42 years what matters is that we're moving back and forth between those dual narratives. And what can happen is there can be this delicious um, braid that you're making. The thing to remember with the dual narrative is because this, these two braids will be sitting next to each other in the book later in revision. This is not something that you could do when you're writing a first draft. In your first draft, you just do your best your best job. But in revision, you will want to make sure that the inciting incident, context shifting point and dark moment of each of those timelines lies next to each other pretty closely in the book. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be exact. There will be only one part of the book that is exactly at 50% of the book. Um, you can't share that between two narratives, but the dark moment where everything is the the hardest for this woman while on this flight and the most difficult part of her life that she's going through in the bigger expanded chronicling of her life, of whatever theme has been chosen for this book, those dark moments will happen very close to each other, probably between 75 and 85% of this book, because that's what the reader will expect. And that's what rewards the reader for being there. Um, that will move the reader and move them through the story, kind of pull them through the story as tensions and pacing are doing what you want with them to maintain this braided structure or this, um, I guess it's not really a braid if you don't have three, uh, this twisted structure of yours. And I think that that can be vastly enjoyable. We see a lot of that in fiction where there's the present day character and then the historical character. And there's some kind of amulet that passes through time and she finds it in a shop in Luxembourg. Um, we don't see it as often in memoir, but quite, I mean, there, there are a few, the only ones I could think of were um, all the way to tigers by Mary Morris or together by Judy Goldman. Um, but I think a lot of memoirs do this 
less rigidly. There's some movement in and out of time. We do not have to be linear in our memoirs. A lot of times it can be useful to write them that way. And then we, in revision, when we're pulling things apart, we can begin to look at what structure will best showcase this emotional experience that we want the reader to go on, to have with us. Um, so I love that you are thinking about that and yeah, play with it. Um, and I can't remember where you are in the writing of it. This would be something to play with only in revision. Um, you can definitely write toward that kind of angle, but don't worry about getting it right is what I'm saying. Don't worry about getting it right in a first draft. We can't get anything right in a first draft. We just need to get through a first draft. That's a first draft's job is only merely simply to exist. So thank you everybody for these fantastic questions. I am now sadly questionless in so many different ways. So um, if you are a patron, please send me a question. I'd love to answer it on the show. If you're a patron who has sent a question and I have lost it, please ping me again. Um, if you want to be a new patron, please do so and ask me any questions at all. I love that I get to do this and that I get to talk to everybody with these answers because all of these answers are helping someone else. So thank you for doing that. It is generous, so generous of you. All right, thanks everyone for being here. And I wish all of you very, very, very happy writing. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.